Hello again and welcome back to week four of the Nurture podcast. Each week we have been focusing on one of the six principles of nurture to really help embed them into your mind and daily practice. It is time now to move on to thinking about behaviour. And in today's episode, we'll be discussing how all behaviour is communication. The other five principles include transitions are significant in the life of children, nurture is important for the development of well-being, and as previously discussed, the environment offers a safe base, children's learning is understood developmentally, and language is a vital means of communication. This episode follows on nicely from the previous episode about language being a vital means of communication. We spoke about how communication comes in many forms and that body language accounts for the majority of our communication. This can certainly be seen in the pupils with whom we work. You will have noticed some of your learners are telling you something via their body language or indeed via their actions. You may see children who are disengaged in learning and therefore they're not completing their work or they appear distracted. Perhaps they're running away from class or from school. And others may appear distressed and are regularly hitting, biting or throwing things perhaps. All of these things tell us something about what is going on in a young person's mind. However, sometimes we're not quite sure what and we therefore have to watch and listen more carefully than ever. Of course, all behaviour is communication. Behaviours tell us something. They tell us if a young person is happy or excited, for instance. They also inform us if a child is bored or if they're sad. And what is often misconceived as challenging or bad behaviour can be reframed as distressed behaviour. So we'll now turn to consider why young people may display distressed behaviour in school. There's a clear connection between our life experiences and our behaviours and simply by acknowledging this and having this understanding we can then become more nurturing in our responses towards a child's behaviour. If you think of a significant life event that's happened to you and then think about how this has impacted your own behaviour this can help you to become more understanding. For example I remember once leaving the oven on and falling sound asleep burning a pizza to a pile of ash. As a result of this, I now have to routinely switch the oven off at the wall at night before going to bed. We need to bear in mind that some young people who have suffered a significant trauma, or indeed have one or more ACEs, they may perceive a situation as threatening, even when we feel it's perfectly safe. This could be as a result of their prior experiences, and something as simple as a raised voice or a flapping arm may just be enough to dysregulate them. Our emotions help to guide our behaviours. So fear keeps us safe, sadness indicates what's important to us and what we may have lost, and joy indicates what's nourishing and what we want to move towards. When we shut these emotions down, we lose our direction, and sadly, this is what can happen to those suffering from a trauma, and it has done so as a way to self-protect. It's also important to consider the variety of needs of our learners, 
And another reason why people may become distressed is that they have an additional support for learning need. This could be making them feel unsettled, unsure or anxious. They may not understand what's going on or what it is exactly that's being asked of them. Both of these factors, as well as others, can lead to children feeling distressed in school and acting out their behaviours. So now you may be wondering what you need to look out for, and this can be easier said than done. But it's important to identify those hidden needs. Behaviours above the surface are probably hiding something going on beneath the surface. We, as practitioners, therefore need to be curious about all young people, and we can do this by asking questions and then listening carefully to the answers. And we can also observe patterns in behaviour, as well as looking out for those discrete behaviours. So let's think first about basic learning requirements. Could something simple be triggering a behaviour? Think about whether a child might be bored, for example, or is a task too easy for them? Consider if you need to check if they understand the task they've been given. Pupils may just need a little bit more time to process, or they might need a quiet, calm space in order to regulate their emotions. You could also consider whether there are any environmental factors that are triggering for the young person, for example, light, sound or smell. A significant factor can be hunger. Has a child had breakfast that morning, for example? Consider too whether a young person appears worried about something. Friendships or an exam, for instance. And it's also important to be aware of pupils who have a nicotine dependency or who have had disrupted sleep. These are all things worth being mindful of and if we recognise them, we can then react and adapt in a helpful way. We can then think about patterns of behaviour and try to identify if these are happening at certain times, during particular lessons or in certain situations. By taking the time to notice this, or maybe even write them down, then we can start to consider if a child feels threatened in a particular environment or moment of time, and therefore begin to make adjustments in order to support them. In secondary settings, I do appreciate that this can be really difficult to track the behaviours of your pupils, but communication between pupil support staff, guidance teachers, parents, and even the young person themselves will be particularly valuable in these situations. Right now, some learners are really struggling to cope and adapt to post-pandemic life. Considering the possible impacts COVID-19 has had on our pupils is therefore vital if we're able to provide a supportive and nurturing environment for them. A young person may just need some, someone to confide in, someone to actively listen to how they're actually feeling, or maybe some time out of class just to catch their breath. A nurturing environment can help them to come to terms with what's happened and give them space for regulating their emotions before returning to class. Understanding the why and reframing our behaviours can be particularly helpful here. Thinking of a child as attention needing rather than attention seeking. Or by thinking what has happened to you instead of what's wrong with you. These small changes in our thought processes can be really powerful. It's important to mention here that all healthy relationships go through a cycle of change. 
So firstly, people relate to one another. Then they fall out and therefore there's a rupture in the relationship. But afterwards, there's an opportunity to make up and repair the rupture. And it's the making up part that is the focus here and the most important part. When we, as the supporting adult, recognise distress or discomfort, we can then start that repair. And within the repair, the trust is built. Dr. Suzanne Zedek calls this the rupture repair cycle. And in between the rupture and the repair, resilience is built. We want all of our young people to have that bounce back ability and therefore this is why having trusting relationships is so important. Building trust with a young person can raise their self-esteem, grow their confidence and help them to know that they can rely on you when they're in need. section, we'll not only focus on how we can respond to distressed or unwanted behaviours, but we'll also look at some common mistakes that we as practitioners sometimes make, often as a result of the other stresses and strains within our lives. It's important to get across here that there's absolutely no judgement from us. We're just helping you to be mindful of how life stresses can impact on our own interactions with those around us. It's worth noting too that young people will push the boundaries to see if you'll be the one to get angry with them or to give up on them. Some of your pupils will be so used to adults doing just that and therefore they'll want to test you to see if you can be trusted. This can be a result of reasons even unbeknown to them. Traumatic events may indeed have taken place prior to their first birthday or even birth leading them to be hypervigilant. As mentioned previously, children may have developed insecure attachments leading to low self-esteem. All of these memories are stored and then they manifest in different ways. Before we go into this any further, it's important to get across that in any instances of distress or dysregulated behaviour, we as practitioners should try to remain calm and we must allow children to regulate and recover before engaging in any kind of questioning or restorative conversation. Sometimes we may act with haste or sometimes with anger and this may be as a result of us thinking that a young person is deliberately misbehaving and that the learner is trying to annoy us or distract us. This of course may be true but by being curious, not taking things too personally and asking ourselves why before trying to appease the situation, this can help. Using phrases such as don't speak to me like that can be quite unhelpful and will often escalate the situation. By being accepting of what's happening, showing empathy in moments of crisis, or introducing playfulness at the right time, these can all help to reduce the intensity of the situation or prevent it from escalating further. Also, being direct but remaining calm helps pupils to realise your expectations, reminds them of the rules and boundaries and their purpose for keeping them safe. ourselves using passive phraseology. For example, we might say something along the lines of, why did you do that? 
which can result in a young person feeling shameful. Unresolved shame, or a rupture which isn't repaired appropriately, can result in avoidance, withdrawal, aggression, and even self-harming behaviours. A restorative conversation may be more helpful in these situations. Allowing pupils to think aloud, then listening and supporting them, understanding why they're feeling a certain way, but helping them to see alternative points of view and then deciding on ways forward can build mutual trust and understanding. So what happens if we miss opportunities to be curious and to empathise? Well, we know that the situation can only worsen for the young person. The rupture won't be repaired and the distress, upset or anger will continue. We should mention here that mindfulness is sometimes used within the classroom as a way of calming children down. Mindfulness, however, shouldn't be used in this way. Meditation, of course, can be helpful for some pupils, but not all will want to do it. Not everyone will be ready and some won't enjoy it, and it should never be used as a way of managing behaviour. When we are particularly stressed, we do tend to become more hostile towards others, which may result in us using phrases such as, you should be ashamed of yourself, or how dare you. If phrases like these are said to a pupil, especially one who has suffered from adverse experiences, they will undoubtedly feel embarrassed and be on hyper alert, resulting in them being quick to jump into that fight, flight or freeze mode. You may have noticed pupils mocking you in these situations or walking out of the room and slamming a door. Again, students may feel shame as a result of your unintentional use of language, meant only to encourage them to stop what they were doing and get on with their task. Of course, we do not mean to do any harm, but it is important to recognise that while we have the power and opportunity to change and help these individuals and schools, equally, we could possibly deepen their harm in some way. A key principle of providing trauma-informed care is to do no harm, and of course, while we do have the best intentions, it is important to be aware that we could unintentionally worsen their suffering. Instead, we could recognise their feelings and actions by wondering out aloud and seeing what you see. For example, you could say something like, I wonder if you're not feeling yourself today, or I'm aware that this might be really difficult for you. Or maybe, you look upset, the reason I'm asking this is because then, step back and take the time to listen and watch for answers or cues. There may of course be additional requirements needed, like a break for example, or you may need to reiterate what it is you would like the people to do. For instance, you may say, I need to keep you safe, so right now I'd like you to stay in the classroom. Scottish Government policy Better Relationships, Better Learning, Better Behaviour recommends, among other things, that schools and local authorities embed positive behaviour approaches. And this, of course, includes training staff in restorative approaches and ensuring staff notice positive behaviour. As always, we'll now finish this episode with our three top tips, which will help you adopt more nurturing approaches when it comes to recognising that all behaviour is communication. Tip one. 
Remember to identify any hidden needs by being genuinely curious. Listen to words, but also look out for body language. Tip two, ruptures are okay. They form part of all healthy relationships. Recognizing when a repair needs to happen and how to go about it is what counts. Resilience and trust is built if we do it right. And finally, tip three, keep in mind that an overdose of shame is harmful to our young people. Think instead about helpful and supportive responses. Thank you once more for listening. And we do hope that no matter what your position is within our education service, that you've managed to take something valuable away from this episode about all behaviour is communication. And remember that nurture is a way of being.